Do you find me sadistic? You know, I'll bet I could fry an egg on your head right now if I wanted to. No, kiddo. I'd like to believe you're aware enough, even now, to know that there's nothing sadistic in my actions. Or maybe towards those other jokers. <laughs> but not you. No, kiddo. At this moment, this is me and my most masochistic. Bill, it's your baby. I was five and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks. He wore black and I wore white He would always win the fight Bang, bang, he shot me down Bang, bang, I hit the ground Bang, bang, that awful sound Bang, bang, my baby shot me down Hello and welcome to Moves and Tea my name's Elwood, and I'm your host this evening. And joining me, of course, it is my wonderful co-host, Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. Tonight, our re-evaluation of the Tarantino filmography continues with a double bill as we look at Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2. Um, Kill Bill is, for myself, one of my favourite of the Tarantino movies. It's probably the one I've seen in the cinema the most. Um, I don't know about yourself, Kim. I mean, where do you sort of rank Kill Bill in the filmography, really? Is this sort of like a middling entry for yourself, or...? I don't know. I don't think I've seen enough Tarantino to make a judgment right now. But Kill okay. Bill is probably one of the first movies that I've seen of Tarantino. And uh, let's just say it was not good. <laughs> okay. But then I think that as I like as I rewatched it um, one or two more times... Uh, Particularly volume one. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it, 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 yeah, I, I started seeing a little bit more merit and I think appreciated a, a little bit more for what it is and what it's trying to do than, you know, when I was, I don't know, what, 15, 16 when this came out. I don't know. Something like that. Okay. Um, well, Kill Bill is a co, it's a co idea, really. It uh, came about on the set of Pulp Fiction where Tarantino and uh, Uma Furman were discussing ideas of this character and he had already was going over the opening where Uma Thurman's character the bride is uh, basically lying on the floor and uh, basically having this conversation off screen with uh, her ex-lover Bill and it was Uma Thurman's idea of how about um, you shoot the scene but I'm in a wedding dress so the fact that she's a bride is all down to Uma Thurman um, hence why it's a story concept by Q and U but um, no, Kill Bill is definitely one of my personal favorites, especially Volume One. Uh, this was a film that, when it came out, I spent 
a good hour, I think, on the phone, just phoning cinemas to find out which cinema in my look where, because I was in Cornwall, so we weren't exactly guaranteed to get a copy down there, so which of the cinema I was phoning for all the cinemas, trying to find one who had one, and the nearest cinema that had one was like an hour and a half drive, so myself and my buddy Milo drove all the way from Newquay to Plymouth to go and watch Kill Bill on like the opening night screening. And uh, an interesting fun fact, my wife um, at the, my wife uh, to be, should I say at the time, uh, was actually working at the cinema that night. And it was only years later that I found out that uh, she was working that night that I saw her. And I do remember seeing her there. <laughs> That's a nice story. <laughs> it is. I remember she was uh, giggling on the stairs with one of her friends. And I just remember um seeing this this bosomy redhead there and at the time i should have said something to her then but um of course didn't because i was a chicken shit wuss and <laughs> you know i was going to see kill bill so i had other things on my mind um and yeah years later i found out that she was working that exact night um and uh, that that screening so she was the one dealing with all those weirdos who had traveled out to go and see kill bills tribute to Eastern cinema because that's what Kill Bill essentially is Volume 1 is his Eastern and Kill Volume 2 is his Western and as such I think it's probably best to break this into just Volumes 1 and 2 because they're two very different movies um, originally they were going to be released as one movie and Tarantino basically looked at it and realised that you know it would be best if I split this movie and Went to uh, Weinstein and basically highlighted, you know, this is where the first movie would end. This is where the second movie would begin. And uh, he was all for it. So, hence, we were given Kill Bill's Volume 1 and 2. And I think this is also one of those rare occasions where a movie's been split into two parts and it's been justified. I don't know about yourself, Kim, on your feelings on this, so. Yeah, I, th I think it is. I mean, I still think it's like, <clears throat> because we're doing it in one, like, like one movie right now right? yeah so as a complete thing it is pretty long so a lot of times i think that splitting it is good because i mean you know nowadays they probably would have just released it in one shot um because it's like you said the the tone is really different and you can really see the tribute that each side is trying to you know the tone and and the eastern western cinema differences and that sort of thing um even that kind of also affects kind of like the pacing and um, the soundtrack and, and everything that, you know, gets uh, added in. So, yeah, uh, there was also a cut release called The Whole Bloody Affair, which combined both parts into the same cut. Um, this also made some slight changes to the film, uh, including the House of the Blue Leaves fight scene, which uh, in the short version we saw was shot in color and black and white. But in The Whole Bloody Affair, they actually used the Japanese cut, which had that whole sequence in color. Um, we also just basically cut out the scene where at the start of volume two where she's doing the reintroduction of, of the character of the bride and she's doing her little dialogue spiel while she's driving the car that was removed as well so if you get a chance to uh, check out the whole bloody affair it's a really interesting cast and it's an interesting approach to it to see it this is one uh, story even though the ending of uh, Volume 2, as we'll get to a bit later in this episode, um, still doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as we said, Volume 1 is very much his Eastern, so here we have a lot of tributes to 
in many ways, there are things such as like the pop samurai genre. So you have uh, nods to like Lady Snowblood, the Lone Wolf and Cub series, uh, Zakuichi, These sort of like pop samurai movies. These weren't like the sort of like highbrow Kurosawa movies and things like sort of Doom. These are just very sort of like the pop samurai movies. These are like where you have like the big hose pipes of blood and. In particular, um, he drew inspiration from the series Gunnada Gindo, uh, which starred Sonny Chibo, who would turn up, turns up as a master swordman Matori um, Hanzo in the film. And in the series, each season he would play a different um, member of of that character's lineage. So he would be constantly changing um, character from season to season. So. The way he envisioned it was that Satori Hanzo would be the latest in that line um, and that he would turn up as this Master Swordman. So the film itself, while we've obviously seen Tarantino make numerous nods in his previous films to the cinema he loves and uh, certainly even nods to Eastern cinema, as we remember when we look at Kill Bill and certainly the basement scene in uh, with Zed, it would sort of like all seemed like perfect that he would finally get to go all out and just do get to do one big like tribute to eastern cinema so i mean come obviously as a fan of eastern cinema i mean did this sort of add to any sort of enjoyment for yourself getting to see these sort of like familiar tropes being scrapped booked into the tarantino world well yeah i mean for sure you, you can really see the the love and the tribute that's put into it by putting i mean even if you think about not only the first movie, but touching into even volume two a little as kind of like an overlap when you you have the the martial arts uh, part in it that you add in. There's different things that kind of I think that you know the the whole the the whole use of you know the the katanas and and you know swordsmen and and that and and just using the whole. Um, eastern uh you know with the yakuza and all that stuff just the scenario itself is uh is is i think it, it it's a lot of fun even if you're looking at different characters and whatnot i think it adds a lot to it i think that's what i think in my opinion i think that's what makes volume one a lot more fun to watch because yeah. there's so much more action and like big scenes so you have like the crazy 88 coming in and then um <laughs> that big fight scene and a lot of action going on a lot of fast-paced things going on um plus it's also a little bit more compact uh so it really you know the whole the whole pacing of the movie feels a lot more fun to watch um along with all these little elements right definitely so um I think that the first one is it's the pacing is just so quick in the in the first one whereas the second one it tends to drag and it takes these moments to sort of like pause and admire the scenery and it was kind of like I think it was in many ways that people like went into Kill Bill Volume 2 expecting like oh we're gonna get more of the same we're gonna go crazier still and it was like nope this is just a kind of like more laid-back western sort of movie it's a completely different beast and i think that's what makes the first one so much fun is the fact that it just goes all out like right from the opening it's just hits the ground running which i think is something that tarantino does so well when you like look at how reservoir dogs opens how pulp fiction opens um jackie brown's a little more sedated and then we obviously have kill bill and we open on uma Furman in a pool of her own blood she's in the wedding dress she's having the off-screen conversation with bill 
and you get this this whole sort of uh, whole sort of setup of it's just so engrossing. The fact it's shot in black and white just adds so much to the scene, rather than if they shot it in color. Um, and in, it's also fun the fact that he even works in um, a nod to from Dust Till Dawn. Oh, okay. Uh, because the sheriff, um, who we see uh, played by um, Michael Parks, um, is the same sheriff. Um, Al McGraw is the same sheriff that you see in Dust of Dawn. He's also in Planet Terror as well. So okay. <laughs> the Tarantino film is very much very clear that um, this film, whereas Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are set in like the Tarantino version of the real world. When we look at Kill Bill, it's sort of like if those characters went to the movies, this would be the sort of movie that they see. Mm. And then when we get into Inglourious Basses, it's all like his alternate history world. So this is really Tarantino introducing a whole new world to us because we got very used to him sort of like his version of the real world. But now we're obviously in Tarantino's version of the film world. So everything's a lot more exaggerated. Everything's yeah. a lot more sort of extreme. And it allows him to get away with a lot more of those sort of nods. And the fact that we have this reoccurring character of uh, Elmo Graw, this Texas Ranger, who's so pitch perfect in his in analysis of, like, the the Chapel Massacre. Um, and the fact that ends with him being spat in the eye and is like, she's not dead, she's alive. <laughs> um, with that sort of drawl, it's just so great. <laughs> so with... The bride, she's obviously sent into a coma, wakes up, understandably rather upset, and decides to take revenge on her former partners, building her way up to taking out Bill, um, as she writes her little revenge list. And she wasted very little time. I mean, we're again, we're just moments into this film, and she's already going after, uh, after the first of her... Um, so, first of all, so a former colleagues uh, with uh, Copperhead, uh, Venetta Green, played played by Vivica A. Fox, who I think you probably best remember as being in Independence Day. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she was in anything else that's really of note, but <laughs> I don't really know. But now that you bring it up, yes, she was in Independence Day. <laughs> uh, I was just like to say, I was trying when I tried to think of like what have I seen Vivica A. Fox, and the only thing I can ever think of is Independence Day. The fight scene that she has uh, has there in the, in the in the home, I think, again, just really fun. Yeah, I think it's just you know, there's there's a lot of variety in in this one, right? It it jumps like right away. We head into this one, and and the tone of the movie is set right away because there there's this kind of casual but <laughs> vengeful type of style, especially <laughs> when you're in the first scene where you're kind of like, oh, there's a kid in the house and they're trying to not, you know, pretend they're <laughs> pretend like kind of pretend that they're 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 friends and, and then they have a conversation which is which um I think the conversation sometimes really is a lot of it it's kind of between the lines. You know that there's something more mm. and it really helps, but obviously this one it, it's done in a way where you know something else is going on already. Um, there's a lot of blanks to fill, obviously, uh, especially since we don't really know what happens to like what actually went down with the bride. How she, you know, we know that you, we know the general strokes of what happens in volume one, but we have a really 
like we really see what happens in volume two. Yeah. So through volume one, you just know that she's out for revenge because of uh she got she got shot and then <laughs> Bill <laughs> Bill tried to kill her and then she lost her baby and then now she wants to go on revenge go on this revenge type of run. Yeah. And hunt down these uh two two was it two people? Three people? I can't remember right now. She's she's got to got a list of five, but in the in yeah. the first film it's uh two people it's that only she two, takes right? out. Yeah, because yeah, she starts with um with Vivica Green, who's it's interesting as well. The the, the film is shot out of sequence, so when we look at her list, Oren Ishii has already been crossed off the list. Yeah. So Fox's character is like the second on this list, and I think it makes it makes it only the more sense the fact that we see her see have her sort of fight scene first, because if yeah. we went from Oren Ishii and then we went into her scene, then it would have been a real sort of step down. But I think this is like the perfect introduction. She opens the door. You hear the Ironside like chime of the um, where she's sort of like um, the siren sort of noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is also used in uh, f- if um, the Five Things of Death. It's sort of like the chi charging noise, <laughs> and uh, the fact that they have this this epic fight scene in the lounge. This things game broken, and then you see the school bus pull up in the background, and they sort of look at each other. And it's sort of like, are we going to keep going? Or are we just going to like put things aside for the minute? Just <laughs> while um, her daughter like turns in, and it's. It's just so comical the fact that when you see like the school bus like coming in and then the child like coming in surveying this damage is sort of like <laughs> and her mum's like oh that dog that dog in your just came in and made a damn fool of himself <laughs> and then then they'll just like go off and have coffee and you're like first time you watch it so like oh is this the thing they've just like had the fight and the you know they got it out of the system and then um you realize that no they're just they're just rescheduling they're professionals they're just going to reschedule to another location yeah um but i mean because you bring up the the comical i think that that's the main thing is that volume one is um because of the comedic elements that that's added to it um it kind of has this i don't know sarcastic dark humor or something of sorts i don't know how you call it exaggerated hmm. i don't know <laughs> i don't know how you how you call this type of humor um, but I think that, you know, after watching it so many times that that's the, one of the reasons why when I first watched it when I was younger, I didn't appreciate it as much. Okay. But as my, I think my appreciation for humor kind of changed. I think that that was one of the things that's changed. Um, I'm still not a big fan of the whole, like, you know, over exaggerated squirting blood thing. Oh, I really? That was a second thing that really, really like, I, I just, I just don't see the appeal of it. You know, I don't no. find it entertaining i don't find it amusing you know I don't, it's just not not really like it's just a lot of waste of time for me like i don't know it, i i just find it unnecessary right? it's funny when you like saying that because it's like here i'm in the other camp who does sort of like things that's just like the greatest thing when you have like those <laughs> arterial sprays of blood and where everything's sort of like that exaggerated um, sort of like levels of violence. The fact it's exaggerated is the fact that it goes past being like disgusting yeah. just to being like comical. And yeah, I think it is meant to be comical. I mean, when the guy's head gets chopped off, uh, I mean, the blood <laughs> that's squirting, it, it's like, uh, you know, it's like someone's turning off a hose or something, right? And they're having some <laughs> remaining fluctuations. <laughs> and, and you know at that point that it's meant to be funny. Yeah. 
right? And and at that point, it's if you laugh, then definitely that could be your type of humor. You might find it entertaining. But I think that, you know, maybe the first time, like, maybe not the first time because I didn't like it, but, I mean, like, maybe one time out of the three, four times that I watched this, I found it funny. But that, that's about it, you know? Okay. But I think, you know, like, talking about sequence, I mean, the, 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 the Vernita Green one is, is really good as, like, a set piece to start because it really sets this nice type of pacing. Because once we get into um, Oren Ishii, it's, it's really different because hers is so drawn out. It's really, like, the entire movie type of thing where she has so much more backstory and, um, and you add in that whole animation type of element to it. Uh, and then you, you go into the, the next part and you kind of like um, kind of see how she, you know, the person that she is and uh, her her background and the, the you know, the her her little minions, you know, <laughs> type of thing. And, and how how powerful they are in terms of, you know, uh, their their martial arts or insanity or whatever level that you want to talk about. Um, it all kind of balances with her kind of more toned down type of I guess you know she has some kind of power to her right Lucy Liu is it, I, th- I think Lucy Liu did a really great role in this one um, oh yeah definitely the, so I mean yeah. I think prior to this obviously Lucy Liu had done like Charlie's Angels so we knew she could could kick ass but here it's sort of like oh let's have Lucy Liu and she's like a Yakuza boss yeah. Um, and at the same time, she's not just a accusable, she's a Chinese-American, which obviously puts her at a, a, a disadvantage in these um, sort of situations. And the fact that they have her introduction done through um, the anime sort of sequence, which was done by mm-hmm. Production IG, um, the scene itself is uh, directed by uh, the company themselves, so shall I say, is... Um, done things like Ghost in the Shell, Blood the Lost Vampire. They did uh, yeah. Linkin Park's um, video for Breaking the Habit. Um, the scene itself is directed by uh, Kazutu uh, Nakazawa, um, who's done a couple of things, many sort of things over the years. I mean, he did Samurai Champlo. Um, he did the an- two films for the Animatrix. We did Kid Story and the Detective Story. So he's. Um, Definitely um, the right sort of person for... Cinema. I think it also helps the fact that her backstory is so violent. Yeah. She has all these horrific things happening. If you have this done in live action, I think it would have soured the tone of the film, whereas the volume one is just such a, a fun time. It's this fun, throwaway sort of like action sort of flick, and it's got these pop summary elements in it, and it's... Just don't if you have those those uh, sort of like harsh reality moments in them, and it's done with live actions. I think it would have really detracted from the films. So I think to have it as an anime, um, not only allowed him to get away with some just really insane shots, but um, also just kept it kept it kind of light and perfectly outlined who this character was. I mean, she's seen some things. I mean, her earliest sort of memories of of her father being killed by a Yakuza boss who she later uses his, the fact he's a pedophile to advantage and uh, kills him and uh, starts her career as being like a hit woman and later a Yakuza boss. Um, and the, the fact that she's now got a, her own like gang with the crazy 88 uh, led by Gonin Liu. She's got her own little psychic, uh, Gogo, who's uh, played by Chikasaw from Battle Royale. 
So it's it just plays into all these like fantastic like kung fu sort of tropes, the things we've seen like Shaw Bros movies and um, the fact that you always have like the henchmen and they would always have like a tough bodyguard and they'd always have all these like minion followers. So she fits into all these these tropes so perfectly and the fact that he establishes her character so well of this person who is capable of handling herself the fact that she got that scene where she's there with all the accuser bosses and um, one of them the uh that that boss the one of the bosses in particular just like why are we listening to her um and she just like runs across the table and like slices his head off <laughs> <laughs> just the way it bounces on the table just gets me every single time it's sort of like <laughs> The fact that then she's like addresses it in both like Japanese and English, and it's sort of like just I would say this in English, just so there is no mistake. And it's sort of like, if you want to bring up my Chinese or American heritage as a negative, uh, then we're going to have some fucking problems. <laughs> and then she's like holding up the head. Um, so yeah, I really love I, that. Those sorts of things just all like just struck so many notes to me. Just like being a fan of these sort of movies, it was just sort of like it. It was it was just like being serve this banquet of just fanboyness to myself. I just like I was just had such a blast in the cinema watching Volume One. It was sort of like just getting like hit after hit of all these things that I knew already. So I think in some ways, you know, what what works here is is that we start off with o- like when we do the Oren o- Ishii type of story, we start off with her as in an anime version and. I kind of felt like when we were watching it from, you know, how you said about, like, the head bouncing on the rolling <laughs> on the table or whatever, it kind of felt like a comic book as well. A lot of things that were happening, like, you know, the blood squirting and all those things, it was very meant to be comedic, but it also felt like it was a comic book type of style, um, like a graphic novel. Uh, and I think that makes it... I think visually it, it, it delivers in that sense. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, my biggest problem with Tarantino has always been like the length of everything, but Kill Bill is lengthy. But at the same time, if you think about it, 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 it does itself a lot of favors by being split into two volumes. Um, I can't imagine like how horrible of a mood I would feel like to be watching this in one sitting. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, I, I mean, we're going to talk about his, his Western-style movies, like, later on. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, like, Hateful Eight. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, um, when you talk about, like, Volume 2 compared to Hateful Eight, you know, I I definitely like Volume 2 more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um... But I mean, like, okay, just, just going back to, you know, volume one. I think that what, you know, the the, the best part of, of the, the movie definitely had to be, like, there were a lot of really great things done in volume one. Um, but I think that, you know, the ending sequence of it is, is, is probably, it's so action-packed because you start off in, in one area. And, you know, one of the things I noticed this time was really interesting was when we have the, the crazy 88 um and they're like surrounding um the bride mm. and they're about to break out into into like the fight right the camera pans on top and under the glass is a zen garden <laughs> <laughs> and, then I, and then i thought that was such a so I, I was wondering whether that was deliberate because i thought it was just 
such a, such a great use and the contrast. <laughs> it's yeah, I mean the the House of the Blue Leaves is is a really interesting location to to look at. The fact that we have the wonderful the wonderful tracking shots we go through it, the house bands, the five six seven eights. Uh, which Tarantino randomly discovered while he was over in Japan doing uh, some scouting. He was went into a fashion store and the guy who was who was behind the counter had one of their CDs uh, playing and he was like, well, who's this band? And he's like, oh, it's the 5678s. And he's all like, I, can I buy this CD? Because I have to go and get on a plane. So Tarantino bought the CD of this guy and that's how the 5678s uh, came in to do the house band and they do... Um, a couple of songs they do uh, Feeling Blue and they do Woohoo and I love the 5678 so they're so much more than just a gimmicky band they're a really great sort of like surf rock uh, 1950s sort of like tribute act they, and they do dress like they are in the film they're there with the beehives and uh, performing without shoes on and stuff it's just, just a really fun time if you ever get to see them live they're really great and yeah we have this the fact that this is like their clubhouse, the uh, when we see like Orinichi walking down the hallway, and you, she's just so in the way that she's dressed and the way she holds herself, she's got such sort of power. And we like compare her to like the members of the Crazy Eighty Eight who are just like these reckless Yakuza thugs. Um, it's just just an interesting like um, sort of comparison there, and the fact that. From that location, we've got like the big open area where we have the the where she has like the fight against the the gang members, and from there we can go out into the Zen Garden. It's just it's just like a perfect location. How it just it's got all the things that we need. We don't have to like move locations. We can just have everything we need in this one location. So, and I mean the location itself is really is really is really done so well because every single part of it is used whether you talk about the bathrooms or or just upstairs and mm. all of these shots that they do kind of really pan out that area so well uh, that that yeah I, th I think it's, it's such a I think it's such a great type of ending location for the movie especially I think especially when you go to you know the final fight which with 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 Oren Ishii and you you just kind of the, the fight is so much so I guess it's it's so quiet in a certain way but yeah. at the same time it it's the way it ends is is quite uh, <laughs> amazing <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word to use um, because if you talk about if you talk about like before the fight that was kind of crazy was obviously with uh with gogo and her little tool <laughs> yeah her the meteor there which yeah which which gets which is also pretty creative in, in in how it is and i mean um did this movie come out after battle royale yes this came out after battle royale yeah, um, when it came to the casting of Gogo, I mean, he originally wanted um, Ko Shibaski, who played Mitsuko, who's like the girl with the stickle in Battle Royale. And uh, she was unavailable, so he ended up uh, casting um, casting Chikoso, um Chaki Kiriyama, um, in the role in Stone. I think it was just absolutely perfect casting choice, and how she's introduced the fact that she's introduced disemboweling a potential suitor. 
um, <laughs> while we have the overbite of uh, of uh, the bride going, did I tell you she was crazy? <laughs> it's just like a perfect introduction for this character, and I've the whole build up from that scene because we have it's not enough for like the bride to fight the whole of the crazy eighty eight, so she has to fight with the eighty eight gang members. So we have this huge massacre scene, and then it's sort of like, oh yeah, you're going to fight Gogo as well, who's this schoolgirl with a meteorite ball, and then we're going to end up with you fighting Oren Ishii. So we've got this free tier fight um, that's in, in uh, place, and the fact that Gordon Lowe is is the head of the ATA, I think, is really great. Um, the whole fight scenes are all choreographed by Yunwu Ping. Who, if you're into Kung Fu cinema, will know what a legend he is already. Mm-hmm. Um, he did all the fight scenes for The Matrix as well. But when it came to doing the film, Tarantino, in the script, had basically outlined each and every move of the fight scene. So, like, you know, people was like, well, what do you want me to do here? Because normally when I have a script, it's sort of like, insert fight scene here, and I just go off and, and choreograph it. So, um, but I think having Yung Ping as your fight choreographer is just brings a certain sort of magic that this film really needs and especially when you're doing a scene as complex as like the bride versus the 88 there's so many moving parts in that sort of sequence it just needed someone of his caliber to really pull it off and the fact that it's all done you know physically with actors there's no cgi when you compare it to the other big fight scene of the time which was neo versus versus 100 agent smiths in the matrix reloaded um (laughs) Which is like, they were like comparing the two and it's all like, well, one's just a bunch of CGI and the other's like actual physical actors doing this like insane choreography. And the fact that we know constantly where the bride is in in every moment of this fight, nothing ever gets overly complex and how she is able to constantly move move this fight and, and how she adapts to like so many foes. Um... Also, real credit, I mean, this was really the introduction to Tarantino working with Zoe Bell, um, who was the stunt double for um, Uma Thurman on the film, and oh, would later okay. become a key figure within the Tarantino universe. She would actually become like a, a proper actress within the Tarantino universe when you got into films like just like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and um, Django Unchained. And now she's like an actress in her own right, because she did the lockdown um, boss bitch fight. I mean, we've, we've talked all this about the, the film tip. What did you actually think of Uma Thurman as the bride? I mean, this this agent of death that she is. Uma Thurman, at this point, it, it, she fits the role really well, right? I don't know. I'm always on the fence about how I feel about Uma Thurman sometimes. Okay. Because in some ways, in, in some angles, I sometimes feel like, her acting skills or, or or the way she talks sometimes through some of the lines. It almost reminds me of, like, Mila Jovovich in Resident Evil. Right, okay. But at the same time, it's... I think her character is meant to be that way, too. Because it's kind of like every single time you have a conversation, it's, it, it, it's, it's kind of very... In, in Tarantino-style dialogue, right? It's it's very wordy, and then but for the bride, it's very um, I don't know. There seems like there's always like something more to what she's saying, and mm. there's some other meaning, and then you're kind of sitting there guessing whether there's something more going on. <coughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think it definitely taps into that mere 
side of her that we saw in Pulp Fiction in many ways. I saw so many elements yeah. of Mia in it, especially when you have like her showdown when she like stirs down Orinishi and it's sort of like and Orinishi's like city rabbit and then she retorts with like you know, tricks of her kings. Um so yeah, this I think she definitely has a lot of the sort of Mia sass to her in this role. But um Yeah. I think I, you know, the thing with with this movie is a lot of it is focused around the eyes and mm. and it and when you're talking about actors and actresses and stuff i always i always have this thing where i think that people who can act with their eyes are the best like emote with their eyes are the best yeah and i think in this one if you talk about it because of that focus it really does help her role because the bride is not a very wordy character she a lot of it is you know a lot of her revenge or um, the people that she approaches or that sort of thing. She has her own hidden agenda. She just she's just trying to use her way and use different types of personality in order to kind of appeal to the people before she shows her real intentions. And I think one of the best contrasts that we have here is when she approaches a Tori Hanzo and she has this kind of like ditzy American act going on. American girl act going on. Yeah. Which takes a turn when the conversation goes to, oh, why is she here? And she's here to meet a man. And, um, and oh, do you know the per Do you know this man? Who is this man? Type of thing. <laughs> oh, I don't really know him type of thing, you know? So the conversation changes really quickly. Um, and, and you can really tell in her character that there's so much more behind her character. Um, like, because it, it's like the volume one, right? You don't really know the training that she's gone through. And because of the whole... Um, timeline being all scrambled you also don't have you know it, it takes a while to kind of piece it all together i think when you get to volume two that's where volume one becomes so clear because now so many things come into the become really clear as to oh well what went down at the church and how did she you know how did she she get hurt uh how you know how did well, what happened down there and then and then you have the whole and then you have the whole thing of like, oh, how where her training comes from. And then you have that sort of thing. And those things are little set pieces that are in between parts of volumes two, between the revenge bits um, that I think add substance. So in some ways, you know, while you're watching volume one, it's a lot of fun. A lot of the real, the real stuff that fills in the blanks of volume one is in volume two. And that's what makes that movie a little bit longer, I think. Okay. Uh, I would. I, I mean, we assume when Soichi was introduced as like Itori Hanzo, that was just like oh, complete fanboy moment. I was as happy as Keanu Reeves meeting uh, Sonny Chiba. <laughs> that there's that level of sort of fanboyness when he's there, and he's so charismatic. Sonny Chiba is, and they they had the fact they introduced him in this comedic scene where he's there arguing with um his uh. With uh, Kenji Oba, who's um, his little assistant there, and the, the fact that they're arguing over who's going to get the the sake, and he's and the fact that he ends with the line is sort of like, "I'm not bold, I shave my head." I think it's just so stupid, but it makes me laugh still. But uh, huh. yeah, just as I said, uh, when Sochi was saying, he's like having the conversation with her, and he's giving her the um, the little nods to how well she speaks in Japanese, and it's sort of like. And say where we say origato and uh, and a bottle of warm sake is good. And it's just 
he just really sort of nails that. And then when you see like the realization of when he when he realizes that she knows who he is, he's a Tory Hansel, this master sword maker, and that and everything she and the fact she doesn't like tell him is like, oh yeah, I need a sword. It's sort of like, oh yeah, I've got a pest problem. I need a a sword to deal with rats. Um, I thought it was just really cool as well. And the the way the sword is introduced, this weapon of justice and honor. It's not just like, oh, I, look, you know, here's the sword. It's all it's given this element of summary and it's given this so, such more importance to it. The fact that this is like a notorious Hansel blade. This isn't just an ordinary sword. This is a notorious Hansel blade. This is going to be the weapon of justice and honor that she's going to get her revenge with. Um, I think it was just, it's just um, really sort of added to the mythos of who the bride is. Uh, the fact she's not when we look at like any other sort of like these characters in eventual like you know John Wick for example, um, he just works with what he has. But you know the bride has her sword. This is like her weapon of choice. Um, I think it's just um, it adds some such elements to this character that I don't think's really been replicated since. We've had a lot of like eventual sort of like um, kick-ass people on like missions of revenge and stuff, but they've always never really had sort of like that honorable weapon of choice that she does <laughs> I, I just find i just find it really great because when when you first see the wall of swords on display it's on this upper level which is next to some like hanging laundry <laughs> I, just thought it was so, I just thought it was so hilarious the contrast of this like majestic wall of hattori hanzo blades right? yeah and she walks towards them and when she lifts it up, there's this kind of, like, respect that you can feel as she's, like, slowly going to lift it up with both her hands. And just around it is just, on the corner of every scene, you have hanging underwear and hanging <laughs> shirts. And <laughs> I just thought it was, I thought, I thought that was, like, such a funny little, little element to add to it. Yeah. Like, just the whole setting of, of this and kind of, I guess, showing that he is retired to a certain extent. Right. That's right. He's 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 a retired sword maker. He no longer makes these these swords. It's the thing. Well, the bride's been in the coma. All everyone has sort of decided to retire for whatever reason, and it's almost like her death has sort of like signified this end of an era for them. I mean, obviously, we've seen already that Big Ray Fox's character got married to a doctor and had a kid. Uh, Orin Ishii has gone on to be a crime boss. And um, even Hattori Hanzo, where he sort of like no longer makes these these blades, he just makes them because of the art. Um, he no longer makes them as as weapons of death, and then he breaks this vow, you know, to um, to make her the make her the sword that's going to, she's going to use to kill Bill. Um, and when we get to the end of volume one and we obviously have Sophie there is being like, again, she's been having a conversation with Bill, Bill's still off screen played by David Carradine um, who I have to say is very good as a I think he would have had a very good actor as a career as a voice actor because <laughs> his, his off screen bits are really good I mean, he originally was a role assigned to Warren Beatty uh, but um, they couldn't get the scheduling to work out and Tarantino had already adjusted his production to accommodate the fact that Uma Thurman had become pregnant. So, as he um, as he openly admitted, I mean, it's sort of like um, 
Um, if Joseph von Sternberg is getting ready to make Morocco and Marlene Dietrich gets pregnant, he waits for Dietrich. And he was like, I'm going to wait for my Dietrich. Um, so he was very, he was like, there was no sort of swaying him that Uma Thurman was going to play the role of the bride. And I don't know, maybe he just, it just, it, it was something about Uma Thurman in that role that he just was really sort of hung on playing. He was willing to make changes elsewhere, but Uma Thurman was always going to be the bride. So, and where you come into it, she does do some very good eye acting. She also does some good feet acting as well for him as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it wouldn't be a Tarantino movie without it, but. Again, this is at the point we no, nobody's realizing that Tarantino's got such a foot thing. It's not until we get to um, Death Proof that it becomes sort of like this big thing, and now we can like go back. I mean, especially as we're doing now, and sort of like going, "Oh wow, there really was a lot of feet shots in those early movies, wasn't there?" There is, there is. I mean, even in this one, as as you realize this, you know, like there's a lot of you know feet shots and sandals and her her, her foot trying to wiggle her toe and, yeah. and that sort of thing. You know, a lot of these different elements that kind of pass by and you don't really notice it usually. Um, but you know, it, it is a thing. <laughs> it is indeed. Um, yeah, with the ending of Cuba One, obviously, only she has been school capped. Copperhead has been nailed to her cupboards. I love as love as well the fact she hides her gun in Kaboom cereal. <laughs> Something I didn't pick up earlier. Um, and um, yeah, Bill like leaves us with that bombshell. It's all like, does she know that her daughter's still alive? And it's all like end credits. And I remember being in the cinema like, oh my god. <laughs> I was like, why can we not see volume two right now? I was just like so excited. Um, and then on the way out, I was, I, I was uh, overheard two people going, like, going, oh, that wasn't very good. I was like, did we just see a different movie than each other? <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think volume, it was weird. With volume one, it seemed like the first time Tarantino really presented a really diverse movie because there's people like myself who really love Kill Bill volume one, and there's people who just didn't get it. <laughs> it felt like. So, um, but yeah, I love volume one. I went, I saw it like, Four or five times in the cinema. Took my dad to see it. <laughs> it's a fun fact. That's like I said. I mean, like I, I originally when it first came out because of I guess age and just um, yeah, not really watching movies like this before. I really didn't uh, appreciate it as much, but I think over time it's it's really you know when I talk to other people, I start like I start realizing that you know the little things and seeing the little differences, the little. The little um, merit, like the little bits of uh, of things that really give it merit in terms of what it's trying to do, and you know the praise of the Eastern cinema and and all those different things. But I mean, you know, when I think, <laughs> I mean, I think that's why like volume two, volume one is 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 so rewatchable in that sense. Like yeah. I really don't mind rewatching um, one a lot, and it's why I kind of avoid watching two. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, when we get into volume two, as I said, this is a real genre shift, which I think is the biggest shock first time you watch it. As we're going from the Eastern to the Western, even though we obviously have in volume two the introduction of Pai Mei, um, who's responsible for the bride's training. Pai Mei, the character itself, is um, a character from a Gordon Liu movie called uh, Clown the White Lotus. Um, he's like the big boss character he fights in in that uh movie and tarantino originally had 
had uh, said that he was going to play the character Paimei himself and um, sent Gordon Liu over some pictures of himself dressed in the Paimei makeup and Gordon Liu was like, well, I'd buy it, but I'm not sure that other audiences may buy it. So um, that's where Gordon Liu, who double duties, not only just playing the boss of the Crazy 88s, but coming back for volume two to play Paimei as well. <laughs> well, which I think is good because, I mean, when, when you think about it, 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 it kind of does work. Um, obviously, he's not completely unrecognizable, even with his, like, little mask thing in, in, as the leader. Yeah. But, I mean, here you really have him in his kind of his zone because he's speaking Cantonese. He has a more, a much more type of, like, his type of character. Um, I mean, coming from me who watches a lot of Hong Kong cinema, that's how I... I know Gordon Liu um, as how he acts and how he is and in, in kind of martial arts movies and such like that. So to me, I think like I think the best part of Volume Two to me in some parts is in some ways is that that segment um, where she's doing her training. Yeah. Um, which which is a big part because her training comes into play in future parts of the film. Um, and, and you kind of, it, it kind of has these little bits that come back into, come back to kind of, uh, that, that gets referred again in the, in, in some other elements, right? Mm. It's kind of weird that we obviously have the training sequence in the middle of volume two, because obviously it being so Western to have this very Eastern moment in there, because obviously it's a big sort of training montage and it falls into the tropes of a lot of Shaw Brothers, a lot of Golden Harvest sort of style movies where you do these extreme acts to get yourself you know into the right uh sort of zone to be the the badass you need to be to go and do the work um and i think yeah the golden Lou is just fantastic as pai Mei and it, the fact it's got those over exaggerated moments such as like when he jumps on their sword um i think to sort of yeah. only add to it and the introduction as well, the fact that, you know, he's, uh, when Bill's, like, talking about, um, about Pai Mei, the fact that he's, he's, um, he hates women, he hates Caucasians, uh, so he's, you're gonna have a real fun time with this one, um, and the fact that, like, the fact he's old, and he's also a mean bastard, and, like, old, old mean bastards occasionally gets lonely, and this is why he does training, is to stop himself getting lonely. He just like humiliates people, puts them through this really intense training, but at the same time, like Mr. Miyagi, everything has a reason behind it. Um, and while he's obviously tough, he's uh, also got a reason why he does uh, the things he does. How did you find the, the training montage in volume two? I thought it was pretty fun. I mean, like I said, I mean, that whole section was probably my favorite because in in terms of in terms of like you know, um, it seeing it as some bit of a a comedy and then having a bit of um, the whole training and and that sort of thing it I I really think it added to the movie because it w it was just um, I don't know I <laughs> I kind of like the fact that it kind of linked kind of to the the volume one with that kind of eastern type of um, that eastern sort of thing yeah. and it really brings up this whole. Uh, even with the conversation, I think it really helps that I understand what he's saying completely because I, <laughs> I understand Cantonese. And then I look at the subtitles and I'm like, that's not what he's actually saying word by word for word. But I guess, you know, like because the because the actual things that he's saying is a lot more intense than what's being translated. 
So, uh, that, at least that's how I, at least that's how I feel. <laughs> I don't think Cantino understands Cantonese either. So maybe Gunlu was just ablibing a lot. <laughs> Probably. It's like no, it's not like anyone's really going to point it out. It's not like anyone else is speaking Cantonese on set, really. I mean, saying that, I mean, obviously, Tantu did go over to like Japan and shot with like a a Japanese crew, um, and like, which I think is really sort of commendable, really, because normally when you have productions go over to like Japan, they have issues, really, it's because they're normally trying to use like Western crews over there and. Often as as drama proved themselves when they did Toxic Crusader too, it's all like you go over to Japan and use a Japanese crew and you have like a much easier time of doing things. So And the way the Japanese sort of studio system is and the same with like the Hong Kong studio system is it's not like just a studio, it's like a village. Like there's like um this whole community that lives within the studio. There's like bowling alleys and shops and things there. So you it's it's like a real community of uh people who live at the studio, so <laughs> um, but yeah, I, as I said, when it comes to when it comes to, comes to volume two, I think that because it's a western, I'm not a big western fan. Um, <laughs> I think it kind of it 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 makes me stop me from returning to it, and I think the fact that we don't have as many of the big sort of uh, moments that we have in volume one as well really sort of distracted yeah. with it. So it's like we got. Bud and we got L in this one is sort of like the main targets. You think, oh wow, we're going to get some like really exciting things, and then we get to Bud and he's sort of like he's basically the janitor of the strip club because he's fallen on kind of hard times since he gave up on the um, assassination game. So he lives in a trailer. Um, L meanwhile is basically shacked up with Bill and she's doing all right for herself. Um, although her fight scene originally was going to be like this very sort of like artistic sort of samurai fight in the desert, but apparently in um, in her words um, of Daryl Hannah that um, Tarantino went and saw Jackass the movie and turned it into a he he got inspiration for how they shot the scene from that. So <laughs> so hence she ends up with her head shoved down the toilet as we have the fight in the caravan instead. So. But it was it was it kind of the fact that we have such a step down the fact that we see Bud, uh, he played by Michael Madsen. He's just I say he's just the janitor in a in a sleazy strip club. I mean, did that detract at all the fact that we're now taking this sort of like step down in terms of tone? I think I you know I really think that that's where the the main issue is. It, it's because you're you're imagine if this was a, a a film that you watched all together, right? Yeah. That tone shift would have been killer especially because when you're talking about the second half being toned down to not only is it like you're taking big fight scenes and then all of a sudden you're going into like a one-on-one type of situation like every every single scene is just a few people and you know you have you have these very um i don't know in some ways it's very (laughs) one-sided Because you know, right away you have issues, and then um, you have you have Bud, who, while I do like Michael Madsen, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that Bud is such a is such a typical character. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> and then even even when you think about the whole um, trying to assassinate him um, for 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 uh, Uma Thurman. 
it's so expected, right? Like that, oh, she looks here, and then there's a sound, he looks outside, and then things feel like they resume back to normal. And you know right away that it's all just... It's, it's, I guess in some ways, if you think about it, it's, it is expected. And that's why when you have that fight with, say, L in, in the trailer, what makes it fun is that it's in such a closed space. And it, and I think because of that, that fight actually turns out well enough. Um, especially when, you know, the, the end game is, you know, her eye gets plucked out and it, it, (laughs) and then it's like, you're having a sword fight, which ends with. (laughs) <laughs> an unexpected outcome and that kind of adds a little bit more to the twist element i guess yeah i um i especially love the fact that the you know the constrictions of the location like she tries to draw the sword on her and she can't because the caravan walls are too close together and those sort of uh elements i thought were really really fun to it and i think i was surprised that daryl hannah was able to fight as well as she she was hmm um, and I kind of like something about the, there's something about the fact that Bud takes down um, the bride with um, with the shotgun rather than just like trying to fight her straight on. He sort of like knows that he's got no chance in a straight up fight. So the fact he just ambushes her um, and proceeds to bury her alive in the scene that actually Mike Madsen, who actually is very anti violence, um, he said he felt like physically sick when they were doing the scene where she's like being buried alive so mm. it's not what you would think from him because he's such a big hulking guy you think that he wouldn't be a, such <laughs> a sensitive soul that apparently he is yeah but I mean a lot of people who play like bad guys in, in, in movies are actually not as bad as they are <laughs> yeah um but yeah I mean I like the character. I think L really gets a chance to shine in Volume Two. I think in any, in more ways, this is really just about the bride versus L more than it is about the the bride versus Bill. Bill seems like very anticlimactic ending in comparison to L. I think L goes is like battling right to the end, really. Well, I mean the whole the whole middle the whole middle section where we're 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 engaged with uh, Bud and L and 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 uh, the bride is is kind of a highlight because that's where things are actually you know happening whether it's l scheming bud and then in the end you know turning it around and trying to make it her situation like make it make it kind of um that that it was the bride who killed uh, that killed bill yeah. with a black mamba you know her code name type <laughs> of thing and you have all these little bits and then and then she has the fight with with the bride and and it it all kind of moves quickly in that sense like that whole scene moves when you know the thing is the the issue with i think the movie is that when there's action it's super fast and then when there's not it's just like slow talk you know like slow chat or you're driving somewhere or you're going somewhere or that sort of thing and, and it's this imbalance that kind of makes me feel a little weird because, you know, for a movie that's called Kill Bill, I mean, like, Bill's fight scene with her is very nothing, you know? Like, it was like, what, two minutes, maybe? One minute? Yeah. There's <laughs> 30 a, seconds? There's <laughs> a lot of build-up there. I mean, the original fight se- final fight scene between her and Bill was supposed to be a... Um... 
the scene which they they describe where she it would be on the beach and it would be in the moonlight and she would be in the wedding dress and there's a poster of her we in the wedding dress with the samurai sword which we would say she would have been her final garb for this this showdown with bill and instead we go for the five finger exploding heart punch the secret technique that only pai may had never taught anyone apart from her so <laughs> Yeah, well, that was so expected too. You know, you knew that was going to be the ending move. <laughs> it, it was so, it was such a given. Like when I heard that, I was like, okay, well, this is definitely like what's going to happen. And then, and then when you get there, it's kind of, I don't know if it's intentional though. I mean, like, is it, Bill is such a, Bill is such like a, um, a lethal type of assassin, right? Mm. And he's like the boss of the assassins, and then, and 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 then you have him who who I, I don't know falls in love with you know who likes her the most type of thing, and it's just kind of he's like a big softy with her in that sense where he's still very lethal and very you know like he's acting out from being you know he like he says you know he overreacted. <laughs> yeah, I mean he didn't yeah. he didn't take kindly the fact that she was she was in a relationship with him and when she found out she was pregnant she decided that she was no longer going to be an assassin and she left him and shacked yeah. up with uh, this guy who owns a record store and said about having this whole new life and his reaction to it was to basically massacre everyone at the wedding uh, even though it wasn't a wedding though was it? It was a wedding it was a rehearsal, rehearsal yeah. which I suppose was in Tarantino's head was a lot cleverer than it came off. Yeah, well, he had the whole explanation of why it was called, like, the wedding dress rehearsal, right? Because they were trying to <laughs> get, get their mileage out of the wedding dress. Yeah, and um. <laughs> the fact she introduces him as her father. Yeah. And the scene where he's, like, and her uh, her um, fiancé is sort of like, Oh yeah, you should totally be involved in you can see like her going, No, 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 don't provoke the situation. <laughs> we are very lucky the fact he's been is this placid mood right now. And I think there's something about Ter uh Caradine's aura in that that particular scene where you just know that he's sort of like he's doing his best to hold it back. Yeah. And I think it is like one of the I think one of the best pieces of acting Caradine's ever done that moment was. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a big problem with Karenine in general. I think that as Bill, he does a pretty mm. good job because, you know, I mean, he, he, he is of age. <laughs> he he's old enough, you know, the age difference there, right? Yeah. And, and you can really see the... He fits into that character because there, there, there's so much more into what he's trying to say and, and not say. Like, uh, even when he's not talking, you can really see that there's something more that's, you know, kind of going on in his head. But, like, what is he scheming type of thing, right? Um, so, in that scene, I think what makes it is that we finally have this close-up with Bill and who Bill is. And, 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 and during the whole interaction, you can feel like, oh, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen, you know. He's going to explode at one point. This is not good. <laughs> And, and I think that that's what makes it really exciting because there's like this quietness, like the calm before the storm <laughs> while you're having that whole um, conversation type of thing. When it comes to Carradine, I mean, obviously he was cast in the role. I mean, he played, by, he played Kane in the um, TV series Kung Fu. I'm not sure you ever watched it at all. 
no, okay. probably not. Um, well, the story goes that uh, Kung Fu was a, was a concept originally created by Bruce Lee called The Warrior. And the studio's not wanting to cast a um, an Asian male in the lead, basically. Stole the idea and cast Carradine in the role instead. And Kane was um, this Shaolin monk, which makes zero sense because he's a white guy, who would travel through <laughs> the Old West, you know, helping people while being this sort of peace-loving Shaolin monk. Um, Carradine himself had very little sort of martial arts experience and... Um, basically, he saw himself as an evangelist of Kung Fu and he did a couple of, you know, Tai Chi DVDs and stuff off the back of Kill Bill. I think Kill Bill was really sort of like the height and it was kind of like a mini revival for his career. Um, and I think it, it works well because you, in your mind, if you you kind of see him as, as Kane and that way you can see him as being Bill, this supposed martial arts master. But I think, um... Tantu really got a great performance out of Carradine in this 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 film particularly. I think he really sort of channels into uh, that laid back sort of nature and, and makes it work here. This with that sort of undercurrent current of violence every time he's on screen. So, but he is the snake charmer because all the other members are all named after snakes, and he has relationships with both Elle and um, the bride. Yeah. Um, we also get to welcome back Samuel Jackson this one which <laughs> when they were announcing the film and it was all like Samuel Jackson as the organ player and we all thought like you know that being like it would be like a Rodriguez thing where he'd be like the organ player and he'd be like the, it, this code name for him being like a hitman but no he is just an organ player <laughs> he's very cool his cameo in this film it has to be said um, but yeah he is just the organ player he has no special abilities whatsoever apart from the ability to smoke cigarettes and look cool <laughs> um, trying to think what else there is um, did you notice Michael Parks again in this one yeah wasn't he like uh, he was in the church or no no he's Esteban um, yeah, yeah, Esteban. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he's the uh, one of Bill's uh, father figures, and much like Tarantino. I mean, Tarantino um, was raised by his mother, so he had a lot of adopted father figures uh, through the men that his mother sort of dated. And I think that's where, in many ways, that he he brings this into the character of Bill again, uh, uh, raised by um, his mother, and he finds like adoptive father figures and Esteban this. Uh, this pimp is um, played by Michael Parks, who has a who who in many ways is supposed we're supposed to like link to this, you know, Bill having the mentality he does. But as he as he points out, the fact that he would never shoot a um, a woman in the face, he would scar a woman, uh, but he wouldn't uh, shoot her in the face. And then we <laughs> see um, one of his girls who's got that very unpleasant uh, lip slash. Yeah. But um yeah, I didn't realise it was Michael Parts until it was pointed out to me years later. I'm trying to think what else there is. Oh yeah, we also get the bride's daughter BB, which was just annoying. <laughs> did the did the bride's daughter do anything for you, Kim? I know you I don't know. I think it's just <laughs> I think the movie in general, like you already you like you know there's a daughter, um, right at the end of you know it's it's surprising because the 
it's surprising at the end when it's mentioned, but when it happens and, you know, I think the moment that it happens is really for the bride's character to, to be kind of like, oh, and shocked, <gasps> my daughter's still alive type of yeah. thing. But for us, it's really, you know, like, it, the movie suddenly shifted where, okay, well, is Bill using this as kind of like a reconciliation or is he using it as like, oh, don't kill me or, <laughs> or, or what is this, right? It is good. You don't you don't break out you don't break out of it so easily in the sense that oh you know suddenly this is changed into some some other dynamic, um. But I mean the daughter you know the the daughter had to show at one point um just to kind of give her that you know to to kind of explain like give her the space to explain why she left. You know, obviously leaving the assassin life isn't so <laughs> unexpected, but why did she, but why did she like hide this? And, you know, she, she didn't tell Bill. She just, she just like bounced, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Then yeah, I like think... what type, like what type of like, it, it really feels like, it, is it like, okay, well she's in a relationship with Bill, but is it, is it something that, you know, she feels uncomfortable with or what is this, you know, like, like she, the relationship is fine until something resembling a kind of normal future is is added in. Is that why she? Is that why like she 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 made that choice to not be a part of this craziness type of thing? Yeah, I know what you. Uh, I know what you're saying. It just felt like it just felt like the film grinds to a halt as soon as we we get we're like building up this big showdown, and instead we got this whole saturating sweet moment with her reuniting with her daughter and it it just sort of like took a lot away from Bill's character as well the yeah. fact he's there playing house and uh, I just like it was just like come on <laughs> kill Bill already this is what we've been saying because even right down to even right down to when you do the kill Bill right yeah. it's such a it's such a you know empty type of scene because it, it's even like you know we were talking about how vernita green was a pretty quick scene in general to get through but kill like killing bill was even shorter than that right they had the whole they had they spent more time talking it out than they spent you know actually actually happening um at one point you know i was i was i almost thought that they were just gonna like be okay, and that's it, you know? And then I was like, what type of ending would that have been? <laughs> well, I mean, she ultimately does get her revenge on Bill, and at the same time, Tantino has spoken for, like, many years about possible sequels for this film. I mean, he had talked about two anime sequels, one which would focus on the origins of Bill, and the other one on the um, origins of the bride. Yeah, and then he's talked about uh, Kill Bill Volume Three, which would obviously have Nikki, um, Vivica mm. Fox's daughter, like growing up as an adult. She would basically be raised by Sophie Loren, who would inherit all Bill's money, and uh, she would raise uh, Nikki to be this um, assassin, and she would go up against the bride, looking for revenge on um, the fact that uh, she killed her mother. Uh, Tarantino saying that you know, cited the fact she you know she deserved her revenge as much as the bride did. So, but um, as with all Tarantino projects, he has lots of good ideas, but often they never come to fruition. It's like Rodriguez; he likes to fill his slate up with all these good ideas because 
Let's not forget, I mean, both Michael Madsen and John Travolta at one point were going to be doing a um, uh, Vega Brothers spin-off, but that never happened. Um, there was going to be a sequel to um, another war movie called Wild Crows, which would have had Samuel Jackson and a bunch of uh, black GIs going on a rampage across uh, occupied France. That didn't happen, so... He's very good at coming up with these ideas, getting us very excited about them, and then then not happening. <laughs> <laughs> so, soundtrack's great. Um, the first soundtrack is obviously, I think, in more of a traditional sort of Tarantino sort of soundtrack in many ways. There's lots of like uh, sound pieces borrowed from the likes of uh, Lady Snowblood in particular. Um, they bought a lot from that soundtrack. When we go into Volume 2, uh, Robert Rodriguez did the soundtrack for Volume 2 for a dollar. He did a deal with uh, Tarantino where he would do the soundtrack for a dollar and in return Tarantino directed a scene for Sin City for a dollar. It- yeah, no, I mean the soundtrack, and I think I think one of the best things about Kill Bill is really like you can actually play the movie and not watch it and just listen to the soundtrack and it's just so fun to listen to. I mean, I actually did that. I actually did that in the while I was watching Kill Bill Volume One the first time around, like um, when we were prepping for uh, this recording. Yeah, I actually listened to Volume One first, <laughs> just just listening to the movie. <laughs> was it you just like listening to a lot of um, Battles of Honor and Humanity, which has been used on every talent show going since this movie came out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or if you like, like going to the gym music. No, I mean a lot of it. Like, there's a, there's a lot of music here that I think if you really took the time to listen to it, it is it it does have a really good soundtrack. Whether if you're talking volume one or volume two, mm. um, I mean obviously you know when you listen to volume one with just the sound, it's a lot of like blood squirts and then <laughs> and then like fighting sounds and that that sort of thing. Um, in in between, <laughs> but the soundtrack itself, I think it, it it it's you know every time you change a scene, there's there's kind of like a different soundtrack to it, and it, it adds to it, it. Definitely, I think I think for me the the main appeal of the movie is the soundtrack. Okay. Do you lean more towards like volume one or volume two when it comes to the soundtrack? Because of... volume one for sure, yeah. yeah. But volume two, I think, also was okay. Um, it was a more, it was definitely more along the themes of like Western country music type of thing. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. You know, con- considering the 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 the, the setting. <laughs> I mean, yeah, before volume two, I mean, he borrows a lot from spaghetti western soundtracks. So there's like a lot yeah. of uh, Enrico. Yeah, he brought in um, uh, Enrico Morricone. He bows uh, bits of soundtrack in that. We've got uh, tracks by Trigon, who uh, Robert Rodriguez's band. We've got like Shiver Ray on there as well, um, who does uh, Good Night Moon, which I really liked as well. So, Yeah. And we also have more from the Reza. Because the Reza did the soundtrack for Volume 1, which I think is, if you're going to have, if you're doing an Eastern homage, I think the Reza is really sort of like the perfect guy to bring in to do your soundtrack because. He's pretty much seen as all the same sort of kung fu movies that that Tarantino has, and yeah, I mean that's what basically Wu Tang was. I mean the reason I got into Wu Tang is because they sampled so many Shaw Brothers movies. Um, when you got like Secret of Chess Boxing and things like, and like Masters of Flying Guillotine, and that's what I loved about the Wu Tang is the fact that they're all like characters from like different Shaw Brothers movie. The fact that. When you look at Reza, his uh, weapon of choice is like the flying guillotine, and 
<laughs> the fact that they use, as I said earlier, they use samples from kung fu movies, I thought was always really cool. So yeah, um, yeah, I was very excited about the reason being involved with this. So, well, that brings us into tonight's episode. Um, thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, if you haven't already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us, and you can follow us on Movies and Tea Podcast at WordPress dot com. Is that right, or is it blog? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh wow, I got it right for the first time ever. And uh, yeah, we, if you leave us a review, um, let us know what you think of the show. It all helps raise the profile. Um, and as I said, we are on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. So um, you have plenty of ways to uh, to interact with us on the show. But Kim, where are we going next on our retrospective? Oh, we're going to be moving to 2007's Death Proof. Yep. I've, for some reason, I had to include as my next one, but that's right. Uh, yeah, in Death Proof, the one Tarantino's contribution to the double bill that was Grindhouse. Uh, cruelly split in two for those folks here in the UK, while uh, the folks in the States side got to enjoy it in its double feature glory along with Planet Terror from Robert Rodriguez. Uh, but uh, more on that when we obviously look at it on our next episode. But until then, thank you as always for listening. Thank you to my co-host Kim. And we'll be back next time to talk about Death Proof. Good night. <laughs>